Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Troy, and I'm one of the leaders here at Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you again, as Mike did, to our gathering here in West Bend uh, on Sunday morning. And I, Mike also talked about how we are starting off our ministry year this year. And as we do that, we wanted to join that with a new series, a short series called Ethos, where we talk about who we are. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at our mission statement. We have a new mission statement. And we're going to spend about a month unpacking what that is and why it's new and what's, uh, what's it about. Now, some of you might be asking, you know, saying, well, it's not every day that you uh, change your mission statement. So, so what exactly is going on with that? Is it that, um, is it that you know, I've, I've been waiting for this for 12 years and finally, Mike, well, whoo, get out with the old and in with the new, right? Like, no, that's not it. Is it, is it that we are completely changing directions as a church? No, that's not the case. Is it that all of a sudden we're really, you know, like, well, the old mission statement was like not cool enough and we're trying to be hip and trendy and, and, and appease the millennials? No, that's not it. What happened was is that we uh, are always trying to hear from God and hear, hey, God, what are you saying about who we are and what we are called to do as a body together? And as part of that, we just wanted to reevaluate our mission statement and tweak it a little bit. Now, some of you are there uh, in the seats and you maybe are like, we have a mission statement? And you maybe didn't know that. So we do. And I want to show you what our old mission statement was. And it's up here on the screen for you. Kettlebrook Church exists to glorify God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this was our mission statement for 12 years. And I believe by, by God's grace and through his spirit that we've been accomplishing that mission. Amen? Like, I, like tell me that you have not seen, have you seen yourself follow Jesus more, become more fully devoted to Jesus, or that you have seen others that you know become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Can I, can I get an amen? Can we praise God for that? Can we praise God for that? So we are grateful that this has been our mission statement. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to make a couple of small tweaks to our mission statement. And so the new mission statement looks like this. It's a little bit shorter. It is a family of followers of Jesus helping others follow Jesus. Now, you might say, well, Troy, did you take that glorify God thing off because we're not about glorifying God anymore? No, no. We just believe every church's mission should be to glorify God. Every person's life we exist to glorify God, so we're assuming that. We wanted to shorten it up a little bit, and we wanted to add a, couple, add a couple elements. The first element we wanted to add was this family piece, okay? Because our family is our gospel position. If you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that God has adopted you into his family through his son Jesus, that you have become uh, a dearly loved son or daughter in him, and that is your position, your position is that you are now part of the family of God because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. We didn't have that in our old mission statement. We wanted to say, hey, what we do flows from who we are. And so we wanted to identify who we are in our mission statement, which is that we are family. Okay? Now, next part of our mission statement we're going to cover in weeks two and three are the second part here, which is that we are of followers of Jesus. We're a family, specifically of followers of Jesus. And that is our gospel posture. Which means that we're always trying to follow Jesus, say what he says, do what he does, live like he lives, love like he loves, sacrifice like he sacrifices. And so everything that we do as a family should be in a posture of doing what Jesus did. That's our gospel posture. And last but certainly not least was our gospel purpose is to help others follow Jesus. And when we say that, we mean that we want to help others follow Jesus 
who would help others follow Jesus, who would help others follow Jesus. The project that we're working on right now that I'm hoping to have done in about a month is that we've been tracing the history of Kettleburg Church and we've got it almost all the way back to Jerusalem. I want to show you that in the video form, hopefully in the next month, to show you here's who we are, is that we are followers of Jesus, a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. That's been the case since Jerusalem and the first church. And so this is our new mission statement. And you are going to hear it over and over and over and over and over again. That's right. And so one of the ways we want to have you hear this is through video. And you're going to see videos like the one I'm about to show uh, regularly to remind us of who we are. If new people come in, they're saying, who, what, what's this about? And so we put together a video. This one's a very summary one because it's our most recent video footage. We're going to keep doing videos like this. So let's take a look at this video. Ready? cool yeah praise god i'm proud to be part of this family here and i'm excited to see what god has in store for us together in years to come now uh, many of you may know about a year and a half ago we were blessed in the lather house to add um, a child to our home and our daughter tiara she's 18 now she was 17 at the time and um you also know some of you know that um she has a smile that lights up the room and has a laugh that's almost as contagious as my wife's you've heard her laugh. She's a beautiful, beautiful laugh. But um, if you've been in our house, you will know that we have a mission statement uh, uh, for our family. Here's who we are. We're the Lather family. And we uh, seek to uh, see, seek, and savor Jesus so we can show, serve, and share Jesus. And we put that uh, in the most prominent place of our home in a picture frame. 
okay, with our family picture. And then here's the vision statement underneath. We learned that from Jay and Kim, and that was a great inspiration for us. Thank you, guys. Um, so what happened was when Tierra came into our house, I remember seeing her look at that briefly and really not pay a lot of more attention to it after that. But then what happened was about three months after she came to her home and, and, and started to really become part of our family, Stephanie uh, took a picture of uh, a picture we had at my niece's wedding with all of us together, and she took it to get it blown up, and she put it in the picture frame with Tierra's picture on there. Okay, and so it looked sort of like this next slide. I mean, it, this is not the picture of our mission statement, but it's kind of like that. Okay, so what was interesting was the day that that picture went in, we saw we caught Tierra a number of times, like just staring at it, just looking at it. And that night at dinner, she says, "Hey, I have something I got to share with you guys." I'm like what? We see, seek, and savor Jesus, so we can show, serve, and share Jesus. She had memorized the mission statement that day. Why? Because she saw herself as part of the family. And when she saw herself as part of the family, she's like, this is my mission statement too. This is my mission statement too. And I I believe that the same is true for us here. That we can say, hey, here's the mission statement. Here's who we are as a church. But it's not until you see yourself as part of us as a family. It's not until you see that that you will actually say, I'm going to be a part of that vision and part of that mission. Because what we do flows out of who we are, who we believe that we are. Okay, And so if we believe we're part of God's family, we're going to start to live like we're part of God's family. If we believe we're part of God's family, we're going to start to live like we're part of God's family. And so we're going to see this in a text I want to work through with you today in 1 John. Okay, It's a letter. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be in the Brown Bibles on page 863, so please, I strongly encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, if you didn't bring one with you, that's okay. We've got some under this, the chairs in front of you. strongly encourage you to grab one of those Bibles, open it up, and follow along as I read this with you um, to John, 1 John. Now, 1 John is one of three letters that were written around the years 80 to 90 A.D., and um, they were written to what was called house churches or, or tiny Followers of Jesus groups, families that met together in homes throughout the area of what was what's called Ephesus at the time. And we believe that if you took the, the language from the Gospel of John and the, the timing and you compared it with the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, obviously what happened was they didn't, it didn't say in the first two letters who the, the letter was from. It just said to the elder, from the elder. And um, so we believe that John, the Gospel of John writer, the beloved disciple, is the one who wrote these letters. And he's writing to these followers of Jesus. And he says, hey, when we believe we're part of God's family, we're going to start to live like we're part of God's family. And he makes it very clear that those who have trusted in Jesus are part of God's family. So we're going to read 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Before we do that, I want to pray. So pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us these words. You promise in your word that your word does not come back void. And so we pray that it would not come back void as we read through it, Father. Speak to us here today in new ways and reveal to us things that would convict us in our heart and build us up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 1 says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we shall be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, we, now we are children of God, 
and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we see, for we shall, sh- shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now I want to stop there for a second and, and repeat this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is who we are. This is what John writes here. Now if you're here today, again, and you're, you believe in Jesus Christ, you trust in his death and resurrection, that he's rescued you and saved you from sin, you're, part of, you're, you're a child of God. God's lavished His love on you, and you are a child of God. And that is not a biological thing. It is not an ethnic thing. Your lineage back to God's family is not based off of your ethnic identity. It's based on the lineage that follows back a family tree that goes to the cross. And that cross makes us family. Okay? In verse 2, John says, Dear friends, we, now we are children of God. John was not writing to his biological family. He was writing to followers of Jesus in the region of Ephesus that were not his biological family, but he's still calling them brothers and sisters. We know later he says friends. We know he's talking about people that were not biological, and yet he says, hey, we are brothers and sisters together. We're children of God. What we do flows out of who we are. If we believe we're part of God's family, we're going to live like we're part of God's family. If you look in verse 3, it says these words. It says, uh, if we pure, uh, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, we see God as pure, and because we know who we are, we're God's child, we're going to seek purity. We're going to seek to be pure because he is pure. Now, there's a ton of stuff in here that I, I would love to unpack, but I want to skip down now to verse 11. Okay, because what we're going to do is we're going to see an example of family, what it should look like and what it shouldn't look like in verse 11. Let's read this. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Let's stop there. John reminds these followers of Jesus, hey, you're family. And if you're family, you're going to live like family, and family's supposed to what? Love what? Love each other. Yeah, family's supposed to love each other. It doesn't always play out like that. But he's he's supposed to. And he says, hey, this should not be a surprise to you. This is not a new mission statement. This has been part of the DNA from the beginning. So this is the same message I told you right from the beginning. And I think John's referring back to either John 13 or John 15 or both, where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, hey, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how they're going to know. So this is not a new idea, but my, my, my inkling is, is that the church, the house churches weren't necessarily always living that out. That's why he's got to coach him in this. And I think if we were really honest, we'd be convicted too to say, hey, how well do we really love one another? How well do we really love one another in our biological family, in our extended family, in our family of faith? So we need some coaching in this. And John gives us some coaching. And he starts out, he gives us, a, he compares and contrasts two things. He starts off with this. He says this. Don't be like Cain. 
says, don't be like Cain. Now, those of you who are here, you may not have a ton of biblical background. You may not know what he's referring to there. So let's back up. If you were to go all the way back to Genesis, you're going to find there is the first man and woman. According to scriptures, the first man and woman were named. Do you know? What was it again? First man and woman were what? Adam and Eve. You've heard that name before. I think you've heard those names before. Now, what you may not have heard is in chapter 4, this fact that Adam and Eve gave birth to a son, and the first son's name was Cain. Okay? So Cain became the first child of humanity, if you would. And they went from being able to drive the Mazda Miata two-seater to now needing a car seat in a minivan, right? Like, so that's what happened. As a couple, they went from being a couple to being uh, a family with a child. And so Cain was the first child. And then after giving birth to Cain, Adam and Eve, uh, you'd find this in Genesis chapter 4, they gave birth to another son named Abel. And with Abel, what we find is the first two, pa- this first pair of brothers, Cain and Abel, the first brothers. Now, I have two boys, so I, I can envision what it would have been like for Cain and Abel growing up together. There's a pretty good chance they would have been fashioning something to play uh, a stick game with. They would have probably been uh, playing hide-and-seek, uh, tag, and making fart noises. I, I mean, just probably a lot of fart noises with their hands, with their armpits, any kind of way with their rears they could make farting sounds, and then laughing about it. That's what I envision these guys doing as they grow up. I don't know, but if you have boys, you know what I'm talking about. So what happens is they grow up. At some point, they decide they're going to give an offering to God. And so Cain brings an offering, and Abel brings an offering to God. And Abel, he's the younger brother, but he brings the best of his flock to God and offers this, this, the best that he has, he gives to God. Cain does not do that. He brings an offering, but it's not his best. And so God receives Abel's offering and is very pleased with it. He's not quite as pleased with Cain's, and this sends Cain sideways. It sent him, it sent him sideways. And God knows something's up with Cain. And so God goes to Cain, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he kind of is like, hey, Cain, let's just assume, okay, let's say the the offering, maybe you missed on that. But if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Will you not be righteous if you do what's right? But here's the thing, Cain, I know there's something in your heart. It's sin and it's crouching at your door and it's ready to overtake you. You must not let it. He's like warning him. So he's like, Cain, choose your next move wisely. And so Cain, his next move is, is he grabs his little brother and says, Hey, little brother, let's go out to a field. I found this really cool field. It's to die for. <laughs> and so his little brother does what any, I think little brother would do. He's always looked up to his older brother. He just follows his older brother out to the field where Cain kills him. Where Cain kills him. And the first brother, the older brother, becomes the first murderer and kills his younger brother. And then God comes to Cain. And he asks a silly question as if God doesn't know. He says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? And then Cain does two things. He lies and he lips off. So the first thing he does is he lies. He says, I don't know. Hmm, that's a mystery. Where is he? Hmm. Total lie. He knew right where he was. But then he takes it a step further and he lips off. I, I, I read it as lipping off the guy. He's like, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. That's exactly who you are. You are his older brother. You're his keeper. That's exactly who you are. 
And Cain, instead of being his keeper, he becomes his killer. And then God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground to me. And because of this, you are now under a curse. And so Cain is sent out. He's driven from the land. He's a restless wanderer and he becomes isolated from his family. Author Brian Sanders says this next uh, quote. The kiss of God upon our souls was community. And the curse of sin in our partnership with evil is fragmentation. The great work of the enemy in the world is the work of fracturing, dividing, breaking, and I would add isolating. Isolating. This is exactly what happened. It's a curse that still impacts us today. How often are you tempted to be fractured? How often are you tempted to be divided by by people, even those that you may know very well and love? How often are you tempted to isolate? Now, yes, you may not call someone out and say, hey, let's go in the field and I'll kill you in the field. But what you do is you maybe distance yourself from someone or you kind of wish that they weren't around or you are apathetic towards them. You cut ties. John says, he writes, don't be like Cain. And so then he doesn't just say, don't do this. He gives another example. He he contrasts Cain with someone else named Christ. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. This is God's word. What we do flows out of who we believe that we are. John's saying, hey, this is how we know who we are in Christ, and then therefore we should love one another as a result. You're children of God, and you are to love one another. If you were wondering back in verse 1, where you're like, it says, hey, how great is the Father's love? He's lavished His love on us. Like, what is, how did He lavish His love on us? He says it right here in verse 16. This is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And so here, I want you to see the contrast that he's doing here. Cain took life. Jesus laid down his life. Cain, he's the firstborn son of mankind. He lies. Christ, the firstborn son of God, loves. Cain, the first brother of humanity, divides God's family. Christ, the perfect brother to humanity, unites God's family. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. And then in him, we can become family. We can become brothers and sisters. And then what we do flows out of who we believe we are. If we believe we're part of God's family, we're going to start to live like we're part of God's family. And so we should love one another. One of the things you may hear us do at Kettlebrook, you may hear me from the front, you may hear us talk about one another as brothers and sisters. They may call you brother uh, or sister. Uh, you may even, if I may tell us an illustration from time to time, I may say, hey, you know, yesterday I just ran the Tough Mudder with some brothers and sisters. Okay? Um, I have biological siblings. Um, I also have spiritual siblings. And so that may be confusing to you. Um, it's, but it's, it's pretty clear in Scripture that this is how we're to refer to one another. I, th- I think it may tweak you a little bit because you're like, no, no, I've got family. Uh, the people I was raised with or grew up with, those are my real siblings. And then I've got maybe this other category, but that's not the same. There's this tension you may be feeling. But here's the thing. I want you to feel that tension because I think Jesus wants us to feel it. 
There's a story in one of the Gospels where uh, Jesus is in uh, a room packed full of people. He's doing some teaching. It's just packed in a house. Okay? It's in a house. And his mom comes, his biological mom comes, and his biological brothers are outside, and they can't get in. So they send somebody in to kind of get Jesus' attention. So someone comes in. Maybe it's just, let's pretend it's a servant boy or something. He sneaks in there, weaves his way through. He says, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. They want to speak with you. And so then Jesus looks at this individual and says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? To which maybe this, this boy was like, probably the lady outside that said she was your mom. And so Jesus then responds and teaches everybody in the room. And he says, to, he says, look, these are, these are my disciples. They are my brothers and sisters. He says, anyone who does the will of my father is my mother or my brother or my sisters. Jesus himself says this. He wants us to experience attention around this. And when you look in the New Testament, you'll find in the Gospels, you'll find the language of disciple. But after the Gospels, you won't find it anymore. Because the language that you find people referring to one another is always family language. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. So I understand that when we talk about using this word family in our new mission statement, it may cause some tension for you, and I'm okay with that. Because I think Jesus was okay with that. I understand that when I say the word family, for, for some of you in here, you... You've had a biological family experience. It's been amazing. You think family, you're like, yeah, that's nice. I like my family. You think of those Pinterest things, right? And you've got a thing in your house that says, we love each other and we laugh and we hug each other and we put the toilet seat down, whatever, whatever, okay? That's what you think of when, when I say family. Some of you, when I say family, you go, <coughs> Okay? Because, like, you think, when I say family, you think, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's Netflix drama, just wait and have, they just got to show up with a camera. They haven't done it yet, okay? Some of you, when I say family, you automatically feel lonely because of your experience. You're like, I'm missing out on that. So I understand there's a lot of, there's a lot of things locked up in just that one word, family. And so some of you may even feel lonely when I say that. In fact, I want to give an illustration of that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we did the baton handoff, Mike and I, and, and I, I gave a story and an illustration. I said, about a month ago, I took our serving team leaders, and we got together and had them do an activity where um, I had them pair up. And I said, I want you, between the two of you, I want, to come up with one, I want you to come up with one word. If you had to pick one word that would describe Kettlebrook, what would it be and why? So they came back, and four of the words were uh, global, uh, comfortable, challenging, and authentic. And I was like, okay, I'm proud of that mix of words. It's, those are those are some great words. But then the, the 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 last pair came back and they said the word family. And I was like, yes, that's. But they didn't even share the mission statement yet. They get it. That's who we are. Except they they were honest and they said, you know what? When we mean that, when we say that, it's not in a positive sense, Troy. And it's not in a positive sense because on Sunday mornings what happens is that if you're not part of like the little cliques and groups that are walking around talking to each other, you feel totally outside. Okay? And so here's what I want to do um, as, as one of your leaders. I want to apologize for that. I'm sorry. If you've experienced... Th- there's reality to that. Okay? The truth hurts and it's convicting. That probably has happened. It's probably going to happen right after this. Okay? I am sorry about that. 
That's not how it's supposed to be. But I've been thinking about that ever since that was said to me. I've been noodling through that, trying to pray about that and say, God, what's going on there? How do we, how do we change that? And what came to mind was um, that this is not what's meant in a biblical sense for family. This. Okay? I don't know how many of you have homes that could fit all of us in it right now, but when John was writing to the house churches, he was writing to much smaller groups than this. And it's hard to do family in a pure sense in a gathering like this on Sunday mornings. Now, you're going to get glimpses of it, hopefully. But it's really hard to do outside of a smaller community that I think was intended for family. And so the image that came to my mind was that Sundays is kind of like an extended family reunion. Raise your hand if you've been to an extended family reunion, one of the bigger ones. Once you, yeah, okay, so most of you have probably been to an extended family reunion. Now let me ask you a question. What is the point of an extended family reunion? Can someone tell me? Help me. What's the point of an extended family reunion? To get to know one another. Yes. Let me ask you a second question. Who do you spend the most time with at extended family reunions? Be honest. Your immediate, thank you, Barry, your immediate family. Why do we do that? It's safer to know these people. Right? Be honest. That's what we do. We go to this huge family reunion and go, oh, I'm going to meet people. And you go sit, right, all the people you know. Not those cousins over there. Right? We, we had this with my mom. My mom has a, We have the Weber family reunion once a year, big family reunion. And uh, they'd always have it on Sunday. And so I oftentimes couldn't make it because I apparently do some things on Sunday. It's the one day a week I work. So anyway, I can't come. Anyway, um, so I said, hey, I really can't come to these. She's like, well, we'll maybe get it switched to Saturday. It might work for better for everybody else anyway. I said, mom, I'm not sure it's that big of a deal if I miss it or not. She's like, what? I said, Mom, all we do is we sit and talk to my sisters and our own family. Like, we can do that outside of that. We can come up with another day. And she was like, how dare you? I said, Mom, if we're going to do this, we've got to be really intentional about it. And so she took her sisters and got them together, and they actually started to become really intentional. So now what we do is all the, the my mom's side, we'll all have, like, my wife and my kids and my siblings, they'll have blue headbands. And my aunts, they'll have purple headbands. And green. And so now we at least know who's coming from where, right? And then we put name tags on. Something we probably should do here more often on Sunday mornings. But we put name tags on because what, what that helps avoid is that awkward conversation. Hey, hey, we're cousins. I should probably know your name, but I don't. And the only time I saw you was last year at this thing. I didn't talk to you then either. Right? So, but they've tried all these things, and it's better. But still, I'll tell you, it's hard because we still meet with our, we're most comfortable in those immediate families. And so... So you are going to experience that here on Sunday mornings. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying you may experience that. Now, and this is why I bring this up because here's what I want. I want to cast vision for you. Here is my heart's desire. One of them. That every person in this room who would say, Kettlebrook is my church family, that you would be engaged with a smaller community in, that are part of brothers and sisters of faith. Okay? That this would not be what you would call faith family, but that you'd be engaged in something. We call them discipleship groups. We call them small groups. We call them missional communities. You can call them whatever you want. I don't care. But it's, the, it's a place where you can be known and you can be loved and you can grow together in following Jesus, which right now I'm talking to you. You are not talking back to me. This is not a healthy dialogue. It's a monologue. Sorry. 
But for us to be family, I want to know you. I have to, I you're going to know me. We're going to press into one another. We're going to love each other. We're going to serve each other. And we need you to do that. Some of you have not done that, and there are lots of reasons why. I've heard them all. And some of them are legit. Some of you are like, hey, I work second shift, and sometimes small group times are really hard. That's legit. Some of you are chasing kids around. I know it makes it really difficult. Your schedule is really packed. I get that. Some of you are like, you know what? I don't know enough of the Bible to be in one of those things. None of us know enough of the Bible. Trust me. Okay? That should not disqualify you from being loved by people who maybe you know more than you or less than you. There's someone in this room who's going to know more or less than you in the Bible all the time, okay? Some of you um, are not in a group, and here's why. You do not feel that you are worthy of being loved. Think about that, folks. And that's not true. That is not true. God the Father has lavished His love on you. If you receive Christ, you are part of His family. You are worthy of His love. He gave it on the cross. Some of you are not engaged because you don't need anybody. You don't need anybody. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're here and you're like, I don't need anybody, or if some of you might be here, you're like, here's the deal, Troy. I don't like people. It's just this thing I've got. I don't like people. I've got to tell you something. Eternity is going to stink. Because the picture of eternity is there's people everywhere. It's actually in a city. A city where people are going to be near each other. Oh! <gasps> And heaven is not going to be 180 acres of whatever you want. You know, you know what? There's a picture of that. I've read about it. The picture of heaven being where, where people are spread out. It's called hell. Read about it in The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis describes how we basically just try to get further and further away from one another because the devil's work is isolation, division, fracturing, not bringing together. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're here this morning and you come, sorry, if you come to Sunday gatherings, you do not have to be a part of one of those to come and gather with us. But I just need you to know that you will not be on mission with us. You will not be on mission with us because we can only do that together. We can only do that together in smaller family units where we're gathering as a family reunion like this. So here, here's the application for you this morning. If you're here today and you are not involved in some kind of family where you're interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ regularly, there's going to be a table out in the lobby. And Mike Moran, Steve Farina, Jay Mundinger are going to be there. And our ask for you is this. I would like you to see if the, hopefully the Holy Spirit will move you to go, I'm not engaged in some way, shape, or form in any kind of group. I want to just go put my name down and say I'm willing to have a dialogue about it. I'm willing to have a dialogue about it. We're not going to commit you to anything. We just want to have a discussion about it because we believe that what we do flows out of who we are, and who we are is meant to be family. And so to do that, we need to get into these smaller groups where we can be family together. So that's what we're asking for is, you know, we're not asking for your, your social security number. We're just asking for a chance to connect with you so that you, we can get you plugged into something like this regularly. At the end of the day, one of the biggest reasons I think that we don't engage in, in faith family is because we actually don't believe that we're actually part of God's family. We don't really believe that Jesus came back to, to, came to bring us back into God's family. And so as I close, I want to give you an illustration. It comes from a 19th century Scottish theologian named James Denny. And it was in really kind of difficult language, so I want to paraphrase it in modern terms. He says this. He says, imagine that you're sitting on the end of a pier on a summer day. 
you're enjoying the air, you're enjoying the sunshine, and someone comes along. And they walk down the pier and they say, I'm going to prove my love for you. And they run off the pier and they drown themselves. You are going to sit on that pier and you're going to go, what just happened? That was the most bizarre thing in my life. You might even be sitting on the end of the pier lonely. You might even be sitting on the end of the pier needing to be loved, but that person running off the end of the pier and proving it to you does not connect. He's like, I don't get it. I'm not connecting with that. But here's the difference. He says, if you had fallen off the pier and you were in the water and you were drowning and someone came and jumped into the water to save you and in so doing drowned themselves, you would conclude there is no greater act of love than that and they had just proved it to you. Does that make sense? Here's the thing. You may be here today and you may be sitting on the end of the pier. You may even know that you need God's love and acceptance and affirmation. And you hear about Jesus' death on the cross. And you're kind of like, ah, it's as strange as someone randomly running off the pier and drowning themselves from me. I don't get it. I don't get why they would even do that. Here's where you have to tweak your thinking. Because you're not sitting on the end of the pier. You are in the water and you're drowning. Because we drown. Our sin drowns us. And what we do is we grasp. We grasp for, maybe it's our spouse, or maybe it's our children. Oh, they'll, they'll save us. They'll make us right. They'll give us a, a affirmation and love. And so we grab at them. Or our, our, our job or our bank account, we grab at those things and we need them. But every time we grab them, they basically just become weights and drown us further until Jesus comes along and He says, Grab onto me. And if you must, push me down and hold me under so that you can breathe. Because I'm drowning so you can live. I'm drowning so you can live. That's how we know what love is. That's how we know who we are in Christ. That's how we know we're family. And what we do flows out of who we believe we are. If we're we're part of God's family, we're going to live like it. So may we be family together. I'm praying that the Spirit would convict you to that today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you've made us family through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through faith and trust in him, Lord, though we were drowning in our sins, your Son, Jesus, came to save us, rescue us, and we thank you for that. And when he did that, he made us a co-heir with his kingdom. He made us one of your children, Father, dearly loved, lavished by your love. We pray, Father, that... I pray, Father, that everyone in this room would understand the lengths to which God has gone to make them his children. They would receive and accept what Jesus has done on their behalf. And then they would live out of that identity and do it together as family. May we do this together, Father. We confess, Father, that we are going to mess that up. That even when we get into these groups, it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard sometimes. We confess that to you. We know it's going to happen. It's not going to be perfect. But we thank you that every time that does happen, that we can be reminded of Jesus' perfection on our behalf, that he brings, the, he brings unity back. He wants reconciliation to us to see that and for the world to see it as well. By this, the world will know that we are his disciples and we love one another because we've been loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen.